0: for putting that together for us and Sherry and Alan for reminding us of, of not only that moment in our history together but also God's faithfulness. Um, we may be small but we have a big story of God's faithfulness. When we arrived here Thousands of churches were being planted in this region, as missiologists documented. And the, and the reality is that less than 20% of those churches remain today in New England. And yet we remain not because of certainly my capabilities, calling, or competencies, but because God has been gracious, faithful, and kind. That's where the writers of Scripture put their confidence and boast. That's where we want to pause and reflect and give thanks to God. But he does use people, both those who are here with us now and those who are in that video that were used by God in a previous season. He uses people to accomplish his purposes. And for that, we want to give thanks, too. And then this fall, when we celebrate our anniversary, we're going to invite all those people to come and join us in celebrating God's faithfulness for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus, and for the sake of a future harvest representing his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, I could play that slideshow and skip the scriptures, and I'd, of course, be fired at the end of the service, but we are so grateful for the reminders that photographs and music and those memories picture for us the story of your sovereign mercy and faithfulness to this body. Lord, to you be the glory, and we give you thanks today for not only providing this building, and helping us to finish this building, but continuing to move us as a local body further and deeper into your purposes for Christ's glory, whose name we just sung about and celebrated. Thank you for the men and women, young and old, who were pictured in that presentation. And Lord, those who served, those who gave, those who participated in that event, those two years leading up to the opening of this building, Lord, uh, for churches in this area that were that owned this property and generously sold it to us, uh, for churches um, near and far that prayed for us, both when we were meeting in schools in Mansfield and Norton and Plainville, um, and for Lord, this church, their faithful giving, their faithful praying, their service their love for you, and their love for fellow Christians too. Lord, we are a rich people today. Mm. We give you thanks. And uh, use that slideshow to remind us all, Mm. not only of what you've done in the past, but your promises for the future. Stir our faith, even as we rejoice in your faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we read the scripture and we're going to read Acts 28, I want to tell you a story that sets up this closing chapter of Acts in ways that connects with all of us. Imagine before COVID, you're attending a conference and your favorite Bible speaker is there. Let's say his name's John Piper, but you insert your favorite Bible speaker there. And after the conference, you go out to dinner with someone who's attending the conference with you. And because you want to watch what's on the TV and the restaurant is loud and the restaurant is crowded before COVID, you ask the waiter or hostess to seat you at the bar so you can watch the event on the TV. Perhaps it's a hockey game or a baseball match or... Um, Ice bowling, whatever your sport is. And the person seated next to you at the bar hears what he thinks is the word pipe dream because you're talking about John Piper and the speaker you've been listening to and how encouraged you are. And he asks you, interrupting your dinner, You're watching of the game. I believe in pipe dreams. And you turn and look. And you turn and look. And you ask him, you do? He says, yeah, isn't that what you're talking about? You're talking about pipe dreams. I've heard you use that word four or five times. And they said, no, no, we're talking about a speaker that we just heard named John Piper. And he insisted you know, you're talking about pipe dreams. And as they drew out the individual seated next to them, they realized, because he was sharing transparently of his need, that he had just been released from a psych ward. And that he had a troubled past, but was optimistic about the future, but was very confused about reality in that moment. What would you say to that person I'll tell you what I wouldn't have said but what my friends said. He did what Paul does in Rome. He talked to this stranger about Jesus and he made it clear. He was, in the words of Luke, bold. Not loud. Not extroverted. Not following a method. Just clear. Friend, Do you know about Jesus? You need to know about Jesus. And that's what he shared at the bar. Acts 28 is our invitation to join God in making the gospel clear. To those in our family, in our classrooms, in our workplaces, in our communities, Not by becoming an extrovert or taking a class in evangelism or changing your personality, but just talking about Jesus and what you know to be true. This is God's word. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on fire, put them on the fire, a viper came out of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. and From there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, And so we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Apius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them, end quote. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Thus concludes the book of Acts. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this final chapter in the book of Acts, we pray now you would give to me and to all of us, Lord ears to hear what you are speaking through these words and minds to understand how what you are speaking calls us to put our hope in Christ and his cause, and Lord wills to obey that we might be faithful in the purposes of the gospel in our day pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We come to the final chapter in the book of Acts, a series which began in November of 2019, and we're concluding it this week, but with an addendum next week, a flyover, if you will, of the whole book before we get to Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday in the weeks that follow. Paul's arrival in Rome, which we just read of, brings this book of Acts to a fitting conclusion. Luke has traced the movement of Jesus' followers and witness from the city of David, Jerusalem, to the city of Caesar, Rome. Rome. And appropriate to its conclusion, he, Luke, that is, echoes themes introduced earlier both in volume one of this book, The Gospel of Luke, and volume two, which we'll talk more about next week. But the book ends in somewhat surprising fashion. Paul made it to Rome, but we are not told whether he ever gave his appeal to Caesar. He never meets Caesar in the pages of Acts. What happened? Was he vindicated? Was he condemned? Paul's under house arrest. And he is preaching, but Jesus told him earlier, and Paul was resolved to give his appeal to the king. It doesn't read like a picture-perfect ending. Unless Luke has a ending to picture for you and me, which is perfect for our church, and you too. The first thing I want to draw our attention to is during the castaways experience on the island of Malta, which is what we read about in the first 16 verses. Last week we read of this dramatic rescue from sea, a a storm uh, in the Adriatic that wrecked Paul's ship and certainly spelled doom for the, the prisoners on board, 274, I believe, Paul, the ship's owner, the captain. And yet, as we read, they swam ashore and all, not one, perished. That's enough to fill a cliffhanger of a, a Netflix streaming series to drop. But what's astonishing as we look to now the last chapter is Paul's reception on Malta. And this is my first point. God's sovereign mercy and human need are brought surprisingly together. Dennis Johnson makes that point in his comments on this passage, and I think it will serve us. The survivors from the shipwreck will spend three months of winter when storms close the Mediterranean on the island of Malta, and Luke describes the island natives as barbarians in the original language of the scriptures. English renders it island natives. Luke described them as barbarians, and by that he meant that they spoke in a language that was not known well in the Roman Empire. They spoke the Punic language. And yet verse 2 says that they showed unusual kindness to Paul and Aristarchus, his companion, and Luke, and presumably the other men and women who swam ashore. Unusual kindness, as if Luke wants us to notice their merciful actions towards these castaways. Yet events turn serious, we read, when while making a fire, because it's probably very cold and it's raining, Paul, as he's gathering sticks for the fire, verses 3 and 4, one of the branches, turns out to be a snake, perhaps it was stiff because it's cold and he's dormant in the cold. Now awakened by the heat, the viper fastens onto Paul's hands and the island natives are shocked. They believed that evildoers could not mock the gods and therefore these criminals who escape their watery death from the sea, did not evade the God's vengeance. And they say as much. You notice in the ESV, they give to the word justice, J. In the original language, it's actually citing one of the Greek goddesses, translated justice. In their thinking, here is a man who escaped the sea, but he is obviously some kind of criminal. Now justice has struck him dead but of course we read paul shakes off the snake and long after the snake has bitten paul he is fine and they reverse their opinion of him don't they quite dramatically they go from thinking he's an evil doer being judged by the gods to now a god himself he is god which of course he says no no he's now a celebrity In their eyes. We meet then this man named Publius. Perhaps a chief of the native people. Or an official governor of the land. That name is interesting to historical people like me. But we're not going to take the time to unpack it. Suffice to say Luke's very clear Publius is very kind to Paul, and during his three months' sojourn there, he invites Paul and his companions, and Julius, the Roman centurion, and perhaps others from the ship to come to his house, in other words, he extends hospitality to these strangers. While there they discover Publius's father is bedridden with a fever, perhaps dysentery, Paul prays for the Father in the name of Christ. Christ heals his Father, and as word gets out, many others come to Paul for prayer, and he prays. Christ heals many others. And they all experienced and witnessed the healing power of Jesus, who Paul served. So all in all, this was a good time on the island of Malta, for the great apostle and his companions. What's striking about this account is Luke highlights the unexpected kindness shown Paul by these non-believing natives. Did you note that? Sometimes I'm so drawn to the snake part of the story. Is I miss the other part of the story. Paul, the great apostle, washes up on the island of Malta, needy. He's a castaway. His ship is wrecked and it's winter. And God in his sovereign mercy brings Paul the great apostle of the gospel and thrusts his life into the intersection with unbelieving natives. Superstitious, yet gracious in their hospitality. And what does Paul do? He gifts them with his need. He gifts them with his need. Friends, there's no mention that Paul ever shares the gospel with them. I hope he did, but they don't speak his language and he doesn't understand theirs. And in every other circumstance where Paul shares the gospel, Luke notes it. I'm not saying he did it, but Luke didn't highlight it. What he does highlight is that he gifts these non-believing, superstitious natives with his need and God in his sovereign mercy provides for him. And Paul, in response to their gracious hospitality, gifts them with prayer. He prays for the sick. He ministers to them in the great name of Jesus. And they are healed. It's remarkable. It's supernatural. It's powerful. You know what's remarkable? Supernatural and powerful? The fact that the great apostle to the Gentiles gifts the heathen, non-believing natives with their needs. I think sometimes in my life and in yours and in this church, God will in his sovereign mercy thrust us into a circumstance or situation where we have a need that is intended to be met by others and the people that he's supplying to meet that need are the people we're called to reach with the gospel. I remember when Jim Donahue came here and would train us in evangelism and we were, we were alerting him to the reality that this is not Philadelphia. Uh, this is not even the suburbs of Philadelphia. This is New England. And we're not natives. And so as fun as it was to do free car washes and give away free breakfasts at the train stations and do free fairs at the community park, and we did many of those, Many of our neighbors thought we were both weird and felt it was a gimmick. And few of them, few of them entered in relationship with any of us. We didn't gift them with our need. But I found in my limited evangelist experience, when I go to others and tell them what I need, They open their hearts and their garages to me. Can I borrow your tractor? Would you lend me your extension ladder? Could I borrow your new sports car? They don't lend me that. But they offer to cut my lawn. They offer to help paint my house. They offer to watch over and babysit. They offer to do all kinds of things. Oh, but no, 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 no. I'm going to go to the church for that. And there's appropriate times to go to the church for that. But sometimes, sometimes God in his sovereign mercy thrusts us into a situation where he doesn't want us to necessarily go to the church for that. Praise God when we do. But he has provided for us through those kind island natives. It's part of his evangelistic strategy if We need what they have, and they want to bless us. And we can, in turn, perhaps extend the gracious hospitality of God's grace to them through a relationship, praying for them, and Lord willing someday to share the gospel with them. That's the first point. And the application's simple. What of your needs can you gift to others? This week, this month, this year for Christ's purposes. And what needs of others might Christ want you to make and meet this week? But the bigger emphasis of the passage seems to be that there are many ways God gets His people to where He needs them to go. And that's my second point. There are many ways God gets Paul to Rome. And this story since chapter 19, this travel narrative that Luke has recorded because he's on the journey with Paul so meticulously is the least likely explanation I could give of how do you get the great apostle of the gospel to Rome to testify Before Caesar, I wouldn't have advised him to go to Jerusalem and seek out the advice of James in chapter 21. I wouldn't have taken James' advice to go to the temple with four other Jewish Christians and fulfill their vow knowing the reputation that Paul had. I wouldn't have tried to defend myself before the mob that was wanting to stone me for having been in the temple. I wouldn't have said to the Roman centurion, well, I think I would have since he was ready to flog me to death, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, I have due process rights, but I wouldn't have then stubbornly insisted at every turn, and I will make my appeal to Caesar. I certainly wouldn't say that the journey to Rome would include a shipwreck and a snake bite before I would give testimony. But this is what God does. God uses justice and injustice in this story. God uses Jews and Gentiles to get Paul to Rome. He used Roman law and he used Roman officials who were politically expedient. He used Jewish law and compromised Jewish officials that broke the law. He used a dream. He used a very kind centurion named Julius. He used some very kind natives on the island of Malta. He used old friends and new friends, as we read later in the passage. He even used Paul's ability to swim ashore in the raging seas to the island of Alda, all to get him to Rome. Friend, God has many ways to get you where he wants you to be. And often it's not the way you planned. At least when you're committed to the mission and the local church and following Christ to the finish line. But that's how it seems to work. Maybe God wanted the church to pray for Paul. So when you ask us, as you do often each week on our prayer chain, to pray for you, you're not bothering us. In fact, you're overcoming your New England reluctance and gifting us with the privilege, with your need. When you ask somebody to pray, it's a privilege to pray. I got my second Moderna shot on Thursday and I felt crummy all weekend and haven't slept at all in like two days. But I knew people were praying for me and I started to feel better, both because the vaccine works. It's not not messing with your conscience on this, but for me, and also because people were praying. Maybe God wanted Paul to feel weak. He is the great apostle Paul. Where grace Grace, grace was manifesting his weakness. Maybe God wanted to find a way to get the gospel to save 275 prisoners and Julius and the ship owner. Maybe God wanted to find a way for Paul to help Publius' his father who's sick. Ultimately, we know God did it this way because God, because Christ wanted Paul to bear witness in Rome. And so where do you feel stranded? Where do you feel stuck? Where's your island of Malta in God's large plan? Where am I being called to patience due to a trial or suffering, due to a loss? Whether it is in prison or on trial or shipwrecks, Paul continues to speak boldly about one thing, the gospel. The gospel. Because he knows he has good news to share when he has extra time on his hands to share. There's probably nothing worse than being told when you're flying. Remember when we used to go on trips and fly somewhere? That your flight is delayed? There's probably nothing worse as traffic resumes as we drive to work. To encounter, oh, yeah, this is what a traffic jam used to look like. Except everyone now wears masks when they're in a traffic jam. There's probably nothing worse than when you're sitting in some space and you're having to wait and your plans are delayed. What do you do when you have extra time with people? What do I do when I have extra time with people that interrupts my plans? Well, this is what Paul does. He has good news. He has good news to share with people. And he finds a way, he finds a way to engage those around him. It may not be a full gospel presentation for Paul, it probably was, but for you it may not be. Maybe wisdom dictates another, but he finds a way to engage the people around him and engage in kingdom business. Is that what you do? Is that what I do? We do... When we take our plans regularly and submit them to God's bigger plan and we say, Lord, Lord, I have a plan. I believe you've helped shape that plan and I'm called to pursue that plan. But my plan comes under your bigger plan, your kingdom plan, because as the wise person in Proverbs said, man devises a plan. But the Lord establishes his or her feet. So there are many ways God wants to get you where he wants to get you. And he will get you where he wants you to go. This passage charges us. Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. I think for me. And for some of you, the reason there are delays in our plans is we reverse the order. You're seeking first your plan, and you're asking God to fulfill it. And it may be an excellent plan. I may have even prayed for you for God to provide for that plan. But when it takes the place of seeking first his kingdom, God in his mercy will often delay your plans to get your attention back on him. And say, daughter, son, I love you. Seek first me. How can we grow in our gratefulness for our experiences of his faithfulness and grace when our plays are delayed, when our plans are delayed, and when they're not how can we grow this week? Let me conclude with this and I'll build more on this. This is my final point. God's sovereign mercy and human need brought Paul and some kind and generous natives together. And there are many ways God used to get his apostle to where he needed to be just as there are many ways he will get you and me to where we're to go. But as we look at the the end of the passage, we realize there is only one message God has given to his people to save us from sin. And it's the gospel. There's only one message. So Paul, in verse 17, after he's arrived in Rome, he's under house arrest, calls together the local leaders of the Jews, we read, and he begins, as he's done again and again and again, to make his appeal that he is on trial for the hope of Israel, meaning the belief that the promised Messiah... Would not suffer death, but would experience the resurrection of the righteous. And that in being raised from the dead, he would renew, he would restore Israel to a place where they could be a blessing to the nations. And so he reasons for them, it says, verse 23 and following, from morning to evening, testifying to the kingdom of God, to the reign of God, and tries to convince them that this Jesus, who lived and died and rose again and now is ascended, fulfills the promises in the law of Moses and from the prophets. And it says some were convinced Though I don't believe that indicates they repented and put their faith in Christ. But they were at least convinced that Paul was not looking to destroy Judaism or even be an insurrectionist in Rome as he was accused. But others disbelieved, it says. And so Paul cites again, you can almost sense or feel his companions saying, don't pull Isaiah, don't pull out this passage again that you've quoted before in the book of Acts, which says, "...though you indeed hear," verse 28, "...you never understand. You indeed see, but never perceive. Your heart has grown dull. Your eyes have closed, lest you should see and hear and understand and turn, and I would heal them." Don't say it, Paul. It's as if he has to cite one more Old Testament evidence that the Messiah has come, that the gospel is true, that forgiveness of sins is now free for the receiving and the resurrection, the hope of Israel, of the righteous through faith in Christ can be theirs. He cites one final Old Testament evidence of their judgment that they would reject Christ. I'm sure better preachers could make a finer point that I'm going to make than just now. But it says at the end of this chapter... That Paul continued for the next two years to proclaim the kingdom of God, the gospel, the reign of Christ, the hope of forgiveness of our sins through faith in him and repentance of our sin because of his work on the cross. The hope of the resurrection, as Dan spoke of it, that we're not only going to heaven, but the spirit indwells us now as a deposit of that glorious inheritance. God is with us because he loves us. And is empowering us to love him. It says he spoke with boldness. I read that. And I think, oh, that means I have to yell. You know, like those street preachers down at the Boston Common in Preacher's Corner. Or it's a personality, like my friend Jim, who... He's a gifted evangelist. And he has a magnetic personality. He's the Pied Piper. Start talking about Jesus and the whole world seems to follow him to the next alpha course. I talk about Jesus and they start slamming doors and driving away for fear I'm coming over for dinner. I think I have to be an extrovert. And so I I let myself off the hook. Or I have to be rude. I have to shove it in someone's face with no relationship. I've done that. Too many times. I think bold here simply means. Am I clear? Am I clear? When I talk about Jesus. In the opportunities and wisdom. And, and, and relationships that I have. Am I clear? Telling them that God has a plan for their life. Is not the gospel. Telling them that God loves them. Is not the gospel. Those, those are truths. That I can. But telling them. Christ died for your sins and mine. You're a sinner. God is holy. Christ is righteous. He has died for you as the righteous substitute to forgive you. Receive him. Repent of your sin and believe in him. Turn to him. And say it conversationally, not like a preacher closing his sermon. And be clear. And you are being bold. You're being bold. You might stutter when you say, it. you might stumble over your words, you might reverse your syntax, but if you're clear, George was clear when I was 18 years old, and I wasn't really listening. During study hall, the guy who sells me dope is talking to me about Jesus and that he's a Christian. And that I'm going to hell apart from Christ. And yet because Christ died, I can believe in him and be forgiven. George, you're talking to John the Baptist in God's spell. You're talking to the deacon at the local Presbyterian church. What do you mean I'm going to hell? But I heard not George's voice. I heard Jesus calling me in those moments. George wasn't elegant. He was clear. He was clear. And because he was clear, repentance and faith were received by grace. And 30 plus years later, I'm still walking with him. Isn't that encouraging, parents? You may not feel elegant. You may have not taken an evangelism course. But when we're clear, About what the gospel is. We're speaking boldly. And when we're speaking clearly. Christ is speaking through us. To our kids. And those seeds. Those truths. Those scriptures. Are potent. Is that encouraging children's ministry workers? As we prepare to resume children's ministry. In some gradual capacity. As we sing songs. And teach texts. And are clear about Jesus. Christ is speaking through you and me. Is there anything more exciting? Grandparents, can there be anything more thrilling? To be clear, why you go to church on Sunday? Why you read your Bibles on Monday? Why you're kind? Try to be compassionate with your spouse every day. The question for me and the question for you is am I determined to continue to share the good news of Christ clearly, clearly? And how can we be bold? How can we be clear in our sharing of the gospel with others? We're called to put our confidence in the gospel's victory. And as we do, we will realize that God's sovereign mercy and human need are often brought together. We are called to put our confidence in the gospel's unstoppable victory knowing that there are many ways God wants to get us to where he wants us to go, both as a church and individually. We're called to put our confidence in Christ's victory, but there is still only one message God has given us to share to save his people from sin. Thanks be to God for the book of Acts, which is Luke's reminder that Paul's confidence and ours is in Christ alone. Let's pray. Well, first, Lord... Thank you that George was clear when I was 18 and lost, so lost and dead in my trespasses and sins. Thank you, Lord, for each of us. Someone was clear. Someone was, in Luke's words, bold. Maybe not eloquent. Maybe not even an extrovert, but they were clear about the message of Christ and his gospel. Lord, we want to say we want the mission of this church to be the mission of the gospel, but if we are honest, if I am being honest, I am not as bold as I want to be. I am not as clear as I want to be. So would you help me? Would you help us, Lord, as we look to you? In the midst of, Lord, our needs and your sovereign mercy and creating connections with people we never anticipated or imagined, as your plan and our plan seem at times to... Be at odds and go in opposite directions, and yet we are confident you are going to get us to where you want us to be. Would you help us, Lord? Would you help us to be as bold as Jesus wants us to be? Meaning, Lord, be as clear as you were with us when we first believed, and as you've continued to be with us, that your mercy and grace would be our joy today. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, that we might be clear, Jesus witnesses this coming week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Let's stand.